Church family, one of the things they teach you about preaching is you're not done if you don't provide application. And I'm a little worried I didn't do that last Sunday since after confessing that I have no feeling in the bottom portion of my nose, no one has told me to look in the mirror in the last week. So I hope you are listening and awake. It's a joke. It's all right. I know it's October. Some of you, if you're diehard Sooner fans, yesterday was a rough day. There may not be any of those in here. It is Austin. So, uh, hey, no, I, I hope you're excited to be here, and I hope you're ready to come to the text. We, we have got to, we're, we're going to not delay, we're going to cut straight to the chase, uh, because really where we're at in James today really is uh, the application of, of everything we've been looking at for the last several weeks. So let me go ahead and invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, and we're going to look back over it for a second. If you're using a, a pew Bible, which we encourage you to do if you don't have one, or if your phone is too distracting, it's on. Uh, you can see the page number on the screens. I believe it's 1071. There it is, page 1071. James has been walking through, and as we've walked through James, remember, he's writing a group of believers uh, who, who would have come to faith in Christ there in Jerusalem, and who at the persecution of Christians that starts in Acts chapter 8, when, when Saul and the Jews really begin to come down hard and begin to seek to throw in prison and end the life of believers, these believers, they have to scatter, and they scatter out into the surrounding villages and regions and cities, and for many of them, that will mean starting over. It's not exactly like, you know, finding out today, oh, my, my job's okay, well, let me go look for some other jobs. Okay, well, let's hire a moving company. This would have been a quick movement of people to get out for the safety of their lives. Many of them are starting over. We know from the rest of the letter of James that a good portion of them, they are by no means wealthy. They are being uh, gypped of their proper salary and their jobs. They are facing true and honest hardship. And James writes to them to say, hey, consider all the trials you're going through as joy because God is working through them. And those, those trials are going to produce something. It's going to lead to maturity and and as you go through those trials, you need to be praying, church family, for, for wisdom to know how to see and understand what God is doing, how to navigate what is happening or not happening. And you need to ask in faith. You need to make sure you understand that God's favor, one's financial or economic or societal status is not the sign of God's favor. And then he says, blessed is the one who comes through the trial and and receives the crown of life. And then he makes it clear, though, that just as trials come and God uses them, trials also enable opportunity for temptation. And he wants them to be clear. God is not tempting you. As, you. as you face the temptations to maybe lash out in anger, as you face the temptation to grow discouraged in question, as you face these temptations, it's not because God is trying to do that instead of exposing something in you. Why? Because God is the giver of good gifts. And there in verse 18, he says, as, as really the, the ultimate sign of good gifts, he, he, he says that God brought us forth by the word of truth. Talks about that word of Scripture, the gospel message, which has brought us forth, which has 
to all of us who have responded to the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by repenting of, of the fact that we are sinners guilty of sin and, and recognizing that Jesus is who He says He is, fully God and fully man, that He has done what He said He would do, which is take on our sin and secure the means of redemption, and He has risen again, and we respond to that in repentance and faith. He brings us forth, and everything we've been looking at for the last two weeks is how then do we as believers respond to that reality? How do we respond to the Word? How do we respond to the gospel message? How do we respond to the salvation He's brought in our lives? At the very beginning, He said, we should be quick to hear. There should be an eagerness to hear. There should be a slowness or a hesitancy to speak, as well as a slowness, a caution to anger. Because anger is not going to bring about the righteousness of God planted out in our lives. But what we should do is with humility, with, with joy and humility, receive the Word which has been implanted. Submit to it. But we're not just to submit to it in terms of, man, amen, I really like that the Word says that. But last we saw it, we're to do it. Well, if we're going to be doers of the, wor- the Word, what now does that mean? So look with me, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, if anyone thinks himself to be someone who is faithful and carrying out the the external realities of faith, or if anyone thinks themselves to be a, a proper worshiper, if anyone thinks themselves or has deemed themselves to be that, but does not bridle their tongue but deceives their own heart, this person's religion is worthless. He says, if anyone thinks himself, if, if anyone in their own subjective thoughts has decided because they can check the boxes of external religiosity, aha, I have been better than the average church attender. I've been three times this month. I've read my Bible four times this week. I have given my tithe. I have, and we go down the line and we, we check these boxes of external actions which are all true and commanded in Scripture. But if we think because we can check the boxes that therefore we are mature, it says, no, we deceive ourselves if there is no self-control over the tongue. If we do not bridle the picture of that bit in the horse's mouth where the rider of the horse is able to control and constrain. It's, it's a picture that speaks of you and I having a kind of self-control and discipline over what we say. And it says if we don't have that kind of, that kind of self-control over what we say, it says our religion, that which we think is so mature, our worship is worthless. Now, by worthless, it doesn't mean it's non-existent or it's not real. He's not questioning the individual's salvation. By, by worthless, what we mean is something that is of no use. It's fruitless. It's vain. It's powerless. It's idle. It's lacking the truth. What we mean is it's worthless in the sense of all these things that we're doing, if it doesn't translate into an inner transformation whereby the power and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, there is a a discipline and control over how we use our speech, then what we think is really God-honoring religion is is fruitless. It's, It's not actually producing what it's supposed to be producing. 
And so church family, understand today, if we're going to receive the word humbly with joy, if we're going to submit to it, if we're going to set ourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word, and that's going to mean we have to control our tongue. We have to control our tongue. This is all throughout Scripture. God expects the tongue to be tamed. Listen to Proverbs 12. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. We, need to, we have to control our tongues because God expects the tongue to be tamed. Not only that, but the righteous seek to guard what they say. Listen, listen as well to Scripture, Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Psalm 141 says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. God expects the tongue to be tamed. We find this pattern all throughout Scripture <clears throat> that the righteous seek for their mouths to be guarded, for, for, for their tongues to be operated. Why? Why? Because Jesus was clear, Mark chapter 7, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that which defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and he goes on down the line. All these things proceed from within a man. In, in Matthew chapter 12, he says, you, you brood of vipers, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Why does the righteous sink to control the tongue? Because what comes out of our mouths, church family, is a reflection of our heart. How we talk, the kind of things we talk about, the tone with, when, which, with, with which we speak is a reflection of our heart. It's not just a reflection or a mirror of our heart. We're held accountable for what we say. In Matthew 12 as well, Jesus says, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they will give an account for it on the day of judgment. And let the weight of that sink in, church family. Every word we say carelessly, every one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account of. James will go further in that later in the book, and he'll say, anyone who aspires to be a teacher of the Word, you will have to give a double accounting for what you say. There is a weight and a seriousness to the speech, to how we use our tongue. Why? Because Proverbs 18 makes it clear that death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue is described as a sword, as a bow and arrow. Understand, church family, our tongues can be used to, to raise up people, to inspire, to give life. Our tongues can be used to tear down. The old little uh, playground saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is the biggest lie in the history of man. You can get over a broken bone, but rarely do you get over a sharp word. I don't remember the stat off the top of my head, but I think it's something like for, for one negative thing of criticism you hear against yourself, it takes hearing something, I think, 70 times positive to, to, to cancel it out. 
Scripture speaks about all sorts of wicked ways we can use the tongue. We can lie. We can twist and bend and manipulate the truth. We can gossip. We can take that and and spread it behind other people's back, which leads to slander where we're trying to attack and assault someone's character. We can use our our, our mouth to, to joke and jest in crude and vulgar ways. We can use it to offer criticism that's not driven by Scripture or love, but just by personal vendetta. We can use our mouths to curse. And I wrote down in here, we can use our mouths just to yak. There were times as a kid, my parents would look at me in the midst of just yakking and yakking and say, help me, I'm talking and I can't shut up. To try to teach me that there can be ways we use our tongue that can be damaging. But there's also ways we can use the tongue to give life. We can bring encouragement. We can see someone discouraged and, and, and bring a word of encouragement. We can speak the truth. But again, even there, Scripture, scripture says it's not just speaking the truth, but to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth with gentleness, to speak the truth with patience, especially among those who do not believe. We can use our mouths to declare the praise of God. We can sing songs of worship. Our words can lift up or cast down. They can crush and dampen our spirits or encourage our hearts. They can be sweet or bitter. They can bring victory or defeat. They give life or death. And church family, God expects if we're going to be doers of the word that we are people who watch and guard our mouth. Well, Pastor, how do you do that? How do you guard your mouth? Well, on one hand, it's pretty straightforward. We watch what we say. We see that what we say, if we detect that there's something that seems to be coming out, if there is consistently a bitterness to my tone or an angst to my tone, there is something off in my heart. So I need to go and, and, and get alone and examine the heart. But, but how do we do it? One, you want to know how you guard your mouth? It's by yielding to the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 6 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. For God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and sound mind, or another way translated, self-control. Galatians 6 says, walk by the power of the Spirit, and it is impossible for you to fulfill the desires of the flesh. You want to know how we control, church family, what we say with our mouth? We walk by the Spirit. We receive the fruit that he, he Himself is actively seeking to produce in our life. And as we walk by the Spirit, we, we speak the things of God's will. We speak truth. We speak encouragement, kindness. We speak about things that are lovely or admirable. We do it in love, with grace and patience. It also means if we're going to seek to be self-controlled in our mouth, that we are quick to repent and apologize when we speak to someone in a way that is not honoring to the Lord. If you listen to the, to the podcast this week, we talked about anger, and, and uh, several of us had similar stories. And, and, and one of the stories I shared is I will never forget a time when I was a child, and uh, I was dead I was doing everything possible to push my little sister's buttons. It had been a horrible day. Mom was at the end of her nerve. It was that time to go to bed, and I was being an absolute terror. I say that to tell you, I was guilty. There is no question, guilty. I deserved whatever was coming. And Dad came in and got on to me and, and, and 
I saw a little bit more emotion from my dad than I was used to. It got my attention. I humbled down real quick and brushed my teeth and was going to go to bed. My dad came back after several minutes and said, Wes, I just want you to know, you're, you're in the wrong. But my tone was out of line in how I addressed you. Now, you know what's funny about that? I can't tell you the date of the year that happened. I can't tell you how old I was. I can't tell you what even my sister and I were bickering over. But the power of someone honoring the Lord when they felt their speech slip, coming back and apologizing, stands out, and I remember it with crystal clarity. Church family, if we're going to control our speech, we need to be quick to apologize when we fall out of line with our speech. It also means if we're going to control our speech, we should be eager listeners, and sometimes we just need to be quiet. It is better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Some of us think we're mature based on how much we know and how much we can talk about. And we live in a day when everybody thinks whatever they think the whole world deserves to know. I got to post that on Twitter. I got to post my thought on Facebook, on Instagram. I'm going to share it on the blog or the vlog. I'm, and all of a sudden, we live in a day where once upon a time, you could think something, but it, maybe your inner circle in the office heard you say it. Now you can think something, and the whole world deserves to know my opinion on this thing. And when we live in a day and time like that, it, if we're honest, it gives a little bit of an inflated ego and shot of pride to our spirits that thinks, you need to know exactly what I'm going to tell you about this. Sometimes having control over the tongue means being quiet. It means knowing what to say and when to say it. God expects us, if we're going to be doers of the word, we must bridle the tongue. Not only that, but if the one who does not bridle their tongue, if their religion is empty, then pure and undefiled religion, religion, uh, worship which has not been tampered and stained in the sight of our God, worship that our, our God looks upon, and sees as, as pure, as beautiful, as lovely, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Church family, if we're going to be doers of the Word, then we must commit ourselves. There's two things here. The first of these two things, we must commit ourselves to, in the sight of God, care for the helpless and the vulnerable. He says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. Orphans, that word, primarily referred to in that time, not those without any parents, but those specifically without the Father, without the one who in, in the culture and time of that day was to provide the, the, the protection for the house, was to provide the means of income for the house. Uh, today, this could be, this, an orphan could count as, as anybody from an unborn child who has no one other than the, the, the body of the mother to protect them. This could be one who has no parents. This could be one uh, who, who is in a, especially a single mother household. It says pure and undefiled religion is this, that you look after those orphans in their distress, in their affliction. Not only that, but it says widows. Widows back then meant the same as today. Those women who, who once had the support and protection of a husband and now no longer do. And, and the reason for pulling out these two groups is not for James to say that there's no other groups of helpless or vulnerable, but is to drive at two of the most common. That in their society, in their day, we're susceptible because of the lack of protection of the husband or the father, we're susceptible to exploitation, to danger, to hardship. And we're living in a culture that provided no means. There, there was no kind of government subsidiaries to give out to people. 
Not only that, but they lived in a society and culture that had absolutely no value for them. The only possible way that they were going to be taken care of was for the people of God to step up. And it says to visit them in their distress. And that word visit doesn't mean to simply just show up and, you know, knock on the door. Hey, just wanted to say hi and and leave. It's a word that means to show up and to attend to someone, to care for them to take care of their needs. It described a doctor going to the house to, to care. It's in the present tense, meaning we're not speaking of even just one-time acts, but a, a continual and habitual spirit and service amongst ourselves as a local church wherein we seek to care for the helpless and the vulnerable in their distress. And church family, we need to understand today, if we're going to be doers of the Word, then we have to be a church, we have to be a people, both as individuals and as a congregation corporately, that has a heart and a passion and a stirring to help serve and protect and care for the helpless and the vulnerable. And let me just help you understand, all throughout Scripture, this is a reflection of, of God's heart. God's heart, God is described in Psalm 68 as a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. In Psalm 27, the psalmist writes and says, My father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Psalm 146, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. Because this is God's heart, and isn't it interesting, it says, did you notice? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. There's a very intentional reality there to bring in the fact that God is Father. That God's heart as Father is to care for those who are helpless and vulnerable. This is why in the Old Testament law there was provision. Deuteronomy speaks of this. He gives, he gives specific rules inside of what Israel was to be as a country where there was provision to take care on a societal level of, of those who were helpless and vulnerable. This responsibility, though, existed before the law because even Job as Job is trying to figure out, why has all this harm come to me? And his friends are saying, well, you got to have sinned somewhere. And Job's trying to defend himself. And we know from the beginning of the story, he wasn't guilty of sin for that calamity to come. Even Job, prior to the Old Testament law and the nation of Israel, even he says, if I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fall or have eaten my morsel alone, the orphan has not shared it. If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, then let, let my shoulder fall from its socket. And he goes on, his point is saying, even he is one prior to the Old, Test Old Covenant. Even he knows that as a person who follows the one true God, there is a obligation, there is a response, there is a, a, a loving reality to take care of the helpless and vulnerable. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he says it this way to us. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous answered him and said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them you did it to me. All of a sudden Jesus steps on the scene and says that a mark of the true righteous is that they are driven to engage and care for the helpless and vulnerable that are in society. And understand, church family, 
Not only is this a reflection of who God is, God takes it seriously. We won't turn there, but if you read Isaiah chapter 1, 10 through 18, God essentially tells Israel, I am sick and tired of your offerings. I am sick and tired of your incense. I am sick and tired of your praises because they are empty words because you, you are not actually caring for the people that I have told you and commanded you and called you to care for. Instead, you're throwing them out to the curb. You're focusing only on yourself and what you can give and what you can gain. Church family, understand, we need to understand. God takes the care, the, seriously the care of the helpless and afflicted, and He expects us as a church to be people who do too. This means we've got to care for and minister to the helpless and vulnerable of our society. The gospel, to receive the word humbly, means that we've got to transform how we relate to a society. It means we must be driven to act inside of a society to protect and serve the helpless and vulnerable. It means that we're going to do things for people who cannot give anything back. Is this not the definition of grace and mercy? It's why I think he says God and Father, because church family understands, Scripture's really clear. There is one point every one of us in this room who is in Christ presently were helpless, dead in trespasses and sin, chained to eternal destruction. We were vulnerable, no way to defend or protect ourselves. But God, rich in mercy, sent His Son that whosoever might believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The very heart of God that brings salvation to us who on a spiritual level were all born helpless and vulnerable should drive us then as people who've responded to that grace and mercy to display grace and mercy by protecting and serving the helpless and vulnerable in our midst, in our community, in our world. Historically, this is what has driven churches to start hospitals, schools, orphanages, pregnancy centers. And contrary to one of the myths today in the midst of all that's going on in society, it says, oh, the church only ever spends on its own ministries. It, it doesn't do anything. Even current statistics today say that nearly every pregnancy research center in America was started by a church. Christians adopt orphans at two times the national average. There is an exponential difference in the, in the amount of money and time that is given to support ministries that take care of the widow and the orphan by believers in churches than there is the world. And church family, I realize this all of a sudden points us to a little bit of a hot topic, and unfortunately the reality of taking care of the helpless and vulnerable in society, all of a sudden there's attention to it because all of a sudden it is a polarized, politicized issue. This policy, that policy, this thing, that thing. We tie different words to it. We want to throw social gospel, wokeness, this, that, all the other. And all of a sudden, everyone starts, and, and, and we start to get, and all of a sudden, the angry words start to pop out, and this and that. And, I, and I, I grieve that because of this, church family. Take all that and set it aside. Take all that and set it aside. That's what I'm doing this morning, looking at the Word. Here's the reality. We live in the midst of a world where there are people who are helpless and vulnerable, and we who are in the church have been called by God to demonstrate His grace and mercy by seeking to live out our salvation in a real tangible society by seeking to protect them and care for them. 
Now, there may be different ways that that should or should not play out on a government level, but we're not talking about government policy and we're not having a debate on that. We're talking about us as believers having eyes to see and hearts to serve, hands that are willing to give time, energy, money, whatever it takes, starting inside of ourselves. Why does the church, part of the reason the church has deacons is because the needs of the widows were so great in Acts that there needed to be some men devoted to serve. We have an Acts 6-1 ministry here at the church where deacons go and, and serve some of you who are widows amongst us. We have a, a food closet that gives food to those inside. We have Part of what we're trying to do with the counseling ministry and training is to raise up a group of people to where we can care for part of the helpless and vulnerable in our society are those who are desperately in need of just some basic counseling, so much so that no church has enough staff to provide. We do it in our community. We've mentioned the food closet, the pregnancy center that we were support and some of you volunteer at, grief share. We do it in our world. We, we, we take together shoeboxes for OCC. Today we're looking at how we can support the Heidi Group to open resource, pregnancy resource centers in counties in this state that doesn't have any, and already there's 12 counties willing and ready to take. We do it with disaster relief, as some of our men in disaster relief, if I understand right, they're, they're not here today. They're out in Florida where there's many helpless and vulnerable after the wrath of a hurricane. Church family, this is, these are the kind of things we must do, and we mean to not fall prey to the danger that just because there are are ungodly ideologies that would seek to craft and make it look like they would take care of the poor. And certainly, we want to stand and speak truth against any ungodly ideology. But we can't, at the expense of that, all of a sudden shut off our eyes to the facts that they're hurting and needing helpless and vulnerable all around us. We cannot believe the lie that the church does nothing. Historically, it's not true. The church has done much. At the same time, we all have to look as individuals and go, we can't just go, well, I'm so glad the church has done a whole lot. I don't have to do anything. Students, I'm probably not going to be the one to be able to feed your classmate who doesn't have enough food for lunch tomorrow. But you can. Church family, I'm not in your neighborhoods. I don't know what the needs of your neighbors are, but you do. There may be things that all of us are called to do. And I, I remember one time as an RA in college, there was a young man. He was down, came from a very broken family. He did not have the provision of, of, of a God-fearing father. Father wasn't in the picture financially. That had led to hardships financially. He was there, and he did not have enough money to get basic hygiene products. My mom happened to come by school later, and I, 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 I shared the story, and she said, well, that's it. We're going to go to the store right now. We're going to go buy them all. This is, my mom didn't know this guy. He's never seen him in his life. But, man, we went and got it, and we set a, I took it down to his room, set a little note on it. That ought to be the spirit in all of us as individuals. And that ought to be the priority, priority as we come, in, come into the church, church family. We are not a country club that seeks to make ministries to meet all our needs. We are the local church. We are the body of Christ. We're the ambassadors of heaven in a broken and hurting world, and no one should have a greater drive to take care of the helpless and vulnerable than us. Because if we're going to be doers of the word, we must see the afflicted. We must serve them. 
Real needs which can't be met without real people and real resources. And by the way, it says serve them in their affliction, which means this church family. When you step in to serve the helpless and vulnerable, it's not going to be easy. It may be messy. It may be hard. It may be challenging. It's likely to cost you time, resources, energy. It may cost you emotional energy. When that phone call comes that a precious man down the street has come to the end of his life and left a widow, and God's opened the door for you to be the first responder, and that's going to be a hard and challenging situation, and one that certainly you don't have to walk into alone. We'll walk into it with you as a family, but you're the one that God put on the front line. It may cost you, but that is exactly what God calls us to do if we're going to be doers of the Word. And understand real simply, church family, especially when we think about these ministries, many of the great ministries that care for the helpless and vulnerable in our society at many of our churches are slowly dwindling because the volunteer capacity is decreasing. Because they were founded by an older generation that had different views and allotments on time. And as we have gone on, can I just speak to us as younger? Those of us who are younger can find ourselves so entrapped and enslaved to the pattern of busyness and hustle and bustle. And I'm not knocking those of us who are younger. This is, but I'm just saying we got to realize all of us of all ages are called, and all I'm asking you to do is, Lord, open my eyes. I want to be a doer of your word. How would you call me to use my time, my resources? How would you call me to engage in caring for the helpless and vulnerable? Because if we don't all do that, then even the great ministries that exist, they will die out. And by the way, just remember this church that he's writing to, He's not writing to some well-off church that has no problems of their own and tons of money. He's writing to people who are being defrauded of their basic income. He's writing to people who are living and trying to reestablish livelihood. He's writing to people who aren't living where their, where their home base was. And he says, hey, even in the midst of your hardship, even in the midst of your suffering as a congregation, if you're going to be doers of the Word, if you want to really worship the Lord in, in a pure-hearted way, make sure you do not forget to care for the helpless and the vulnerable. But then he has one more thing. He says, and keep oneself unstained by the world. Guard, protect, watch yourself by the world. And that term world, what what he doesn't mean is, hey, make sure when you go outside, don't roll around in the dirt. Don't get any world on you. Make sure you don't get grass stains on that nice new outfit for church on Easter Sunday doing the Easter egg hunt. That's not what he's saying. When he uses the term world there, he's referring to the system, the beliefs, the attitude, the ideologies, the mindset that are reflective of the brokenness of the world. He's referring to the pattern of the world, which according to Ephesians 2, there, when we mentioned Wednesday, when we talk about heaven or hell, hell is not the place where Satan rules. Hell is the place where Satan will suffer for all eternity. But Scripture does say that this world, this lost world, Satan does rule and twists and deceives the hearts of men and women. And and there is a system to this world that exalts lying, falsehood, and deception. 
It's okay to exaggerate that claim on your resume and not be factual, make yourself sound better than you really are. It's okay to say one thing over here, then do the opposite of it, and when you're called out on it, to come up with a different explanation that seems to fit even though no one in their right mind would buy it. It's okay to to act in ways to get worldly gain. It's okay, the system of the world, to act to try to accumulate whatever I can out of self-centered gain and and promotion and and me. There are systems in this world. You say, well, what do you mean? You say, well, pastor, I'm I'm no Marxist or revolutionary or what do you mean systems? Let me give you an example. The word competition, right? We say, ah, oh, it's not a bad thing to be competitive. And I'm not knocking being competitive. But the word competition in the business sphere wasn't really a thing until the Industrial Revolution in America. Prior to the Industrial Revolution in America, if someone was down on the left, I owned a business and my competitor down the street came on hard times. He was up on the ladder, putting some stuff high, fell off, broke his back. It was going to be a stretch. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the idea was, the idea was, and, and, and coming from, honestly, actually biblical ethics at that point, the idea was, I don't try to squash my competition in the hurt. I, I go offer my time. I help them. I, I help them come back. I take care because that's a person who, who needs. That goes back to helpless and vulnerable. But in the Industrial Revolution and, and many of the business practices that came about with guys like Rockefeller and Carnegie and all of these things, it switched in the idea of competition. That's my competition down the street. It's not my neighbor, it's my competition. Oh, he's come on hard times, boom, this is the point. We're going to do this and we're going to put him out of business. Systems of the world, ways of thinking, of doing things that do not reflect Scripture, that do not reflect Scripture says Scripture says that for every person, God has a plan for their life. Scripture says that part of that plan is for them to know Him, love Him, follow Him, and that should be over everything that they do. Which means for our students, for our children, the heart of everything we want for them, the heart of their education, the heart of everything we should be after for them is that they know the Lord truly, that they have a real genuine love for the Lord and salvation, and that they know what God's direction is and to follow it yet. How many times in 10 years of working with students have I found students who are on the verge of severe depression, if not worse things, because starting in junior high, they've got to decide what they want to do for the rest of their life and pick a special track to go in as a 12-year-old that's going to guide what they do in junior high and set them up for this special program in high school, where in high school, they're going to bite off two different sports, a different, three different extracurriculars, grabbing a couple clubs. They're going to wake up at 545 in the morning, get to school at 6, stay there till 6, come home, eat dinner, have homework till 10 or 11, and then try to repeat and operate off of five hours of sleep all in the name of padding the resume to get into Texas A&M, to get into University of Texas, so they're going to get that degree that studies say they will change their career from that degree five times by the age of 40 so that they can have that six-figure income and have a dream life. And all of a sudden, I look at a teenager and go, why don't you ever spend any time in the Word? And they walk me through their schedule, and I go, holy smokes, this because legitimately you don't have any time to. because we can be driven by the pattern and thinking and system of the world. And and Scripture's clear here, church family. What what does worship that honors God look like? It's controlling our tongues. It's caring for the helpless and vulnerable. But it's also making sure that when it comes to our hearts and minds, 
that how we think, how we operate, how we move, how we live, how we breathe is not covered in the grass stains of this world. You say, how do you do that, Pastor? How do we remain unstained? Well, Scripture gives it to us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, He urges us to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You take the mindset that this isn't about me. It's all about God, and I'm going to set myself on the altar as a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Understand the Holy Spirit is at work transforming and molding and operating our minds. It's, it's, it's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that the essence of spiritual warfare is this, that you take captive your thoughts that you biblically and critically, you critically biblically think about every thought that passes through, every idea that would drive you, and you take them captive to the obedience of Christ. You can't control what birds fly through the sky of your mind, but you can absolutely control which ones get to make a nest in the tree of your mind. It means we pursue the things above Colossians 3, that we set our minds and hearts on, on the things above, which means you're going to have to know the Word to know what the things above are. It means something else is driving us, and ultimately, it's by the power of God that we rest on in faith. Listen to how Jude, Jude writes a brief one-chapter letter where he's urging a congregation of people to resist the, the tricky and deceitful false doctrine of teachers that have entered their midst, and he gets to the end of it after commanding them to stay strong, to keep themselves, to, to remain unstained by the world. He gets to the end and he says this, now to Jesus who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory and blamelessness with great joy, to our only God and Savior through the Lord Jesus Christ be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Understand, our minds are being transformed. We must submit to that. Understand, we must take our thoughts captive to what truth says. Understand, we must seek and set our, our will and desire on the things that God says are of value in there. And also understand, as we do all that, we don't do it by our own power and might, but we do it by His grace, resting on the fact that He will preserve us if we will just love and follow Him. Church family, by no means are these the only things that make up pure and undefiled religion or pure and undefiled worship may be the better way for us to understand it. But James picks out what will become the agenda for the rest of the letter. That is, what will the world see in us? Will they see a people who are marked by a tongue reflective of God or by loose lips which sink ships? Will they see a people who say, wow, we have been saved so great a salvation and now we want to extend tangibly into the world care for the helpless and vulnerable? Will they see a people who rather than finding every way to take the framework and ideologies of the world and make them sound Christian say, you know what, we don't want any part of that. We're going to live in the world. We're going to live and move and breathe as ambassadors, as holy lights of heaven. But I want my holy robe to look like Jesus and shine His glory, not, not have all the grass and dirt of the world. Church family, what will they see in us? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity You've given us. The reality is these commands are in front of us today because first, Lord, You look down as us, as Your creation, Your image bearers, but marred, broken, and separated from You in sin with no ability to redeem ourselves, with no ability to pull ourselves out. You looked at us 
And rather than being filled with angst and anger and just wanting to squash us for our rebellion against you, you were filled with mercy, with compassion, with a, with a desire to act, to alleviate, to correct the problem, to, to fix our pain and brokenness. And you acted. And Jesus, because you've come, you've lived, you've died, you've risen, and you offer salvation for those of us who've responded in faith and been saved by your grace, church family, or, or, or Father, it's that reason that as a church family, we have these commands in front of us. It's because you are our God and Father. So Lord, may we receive your word with joy. May we set our hearts to rest upon your grace and to follow you out of that grace, knowing that, Holy Spirit, you live within to empower us to do these things, to control our tongue, to see and care for the helpless and vulnerable, and, Father, to keep ourselves unstained, to observe, to guard what we choose to believe and think so that we live out of faith that is not stained and flavored by this world but is a pure and true reflection of worship to you. Holy Spirit, as you stir and move our hearts, may we respond. It's in your name I pray.